From Australia, I take influences from the Aboriginal culture and the landscape. And when I come back to Italy, I take the ancient. Ancient man always had archetypal images that, that they would put up, you know, like the fertility, the woman, the seasons, being in balance with life. women are embraced for something deeper. And coming to Europe, the women are really women. They're proud of it. They love being feminine. So that was a bit of a journey to, to embrace being a woman. Hi, this is Materially Speaking, where artists tell their stories through the materials they choose. In this series, we're talking to artists in Italy, in a town called Pietrasanta, 15 miles south of the Carrara Marble Mountains. Pietrasanta has a long tradition of marble carving studios and also of foundries which realise artists' work in bronze. Today, I'm talking to Australian sculptor Shona Noonan, who first came to the area 37 years ago. We met in Pietrasanta's central square, the Piazza Duomo, and started to walk uphill. To our left is the old theatre, now a cinema, and on our right, the Church of Sant'Agostino, which hosts concerts and art exhibitions. Sant'Agostino is also home to the Museo de Bossetti, which has over 700 maquettes, or reduced-scale models, donated by sculptors who've worked here over the years. It gives an extraordinary insight into the body of work produced here. Uphill, Shona and I settle in a small public park overlooking the Piazza Duomo. Children play around us, and in the corner is a water trough with a plaque marking the route of the Via Francigena, the ancient pilgrim's route from Canterbury to Rome. My name is Shona Noonan. Um, I'm, I'm a sculptor, I'm Australian, but I actually feel like I'm global, really. I feel like I belong to the world because I like to take influences from all around the world. It feels really important to my art, to my growth as a person and to the growth of my artwork. So where were you born? I was born in um, a little town north of Melbourne in the south of Australia. Why did you come to Italy? To tell ourselves and the world that we are artists and that was the only road we were taking was a huge act of bravery to do it because um, there was so much to fight and we were young middle-class kids who just didn't fit the system and so we had to break it and going to Italy it was momentous it was absolutely momentous and we believed that our children came to us um, because they chose us we believe they chose us as much as we chose them so we thought without any guilt that we're going to do what we did. So we've dragged them all over the world. <laughs> and now the two boys are both artists, wonderful artists themselves. And oh dear, I sometimes I feel a bit guilty, but no, I keep saying, no, they chose us too. <laughs> 
we just had all these dreams that we just put out there and, and our upbringing said, no, go and join suburbia, I suppose, and do the correct thing. We didn't, I think we taught for two years and then we decided, no, we're leaving. We're, we're going to Italy. So we went to Italy with our little 18-monther. And oh, that's Jake. That's Jacob. And so we went, we went to Italy and we ended up in Carrara. So what was Carrara like? That's 35 years ago, I oh. guess, because Jake, Jake's 37. So Carrara was fantastic. What a place. It was thriving. There were artists everywhere. We were really poor. We had no hot water, no heating. And I worked in the upstairs room of our little house where I did works towards bronze, where it was my dream. I didn't get them cast for years, but it was the dream. And we came to Pietrasanta to look at the foundries, peering in behind the gates and going, oh, we felt like we would never get there, but we did. Nothing like starting putting one foot forward. Eventually you meet the dream. We couldn't afford the lunches even in those days. We went out occasionally once or twice a month to to have the Pranza di Lavoro. And all these American artists were there and they were all being sponsored by their galleries. We were so amazed. We thought the Americans were the most kindly giving people. You know, they were always supporting their artists. So there were always these young kids going around, throwing money left, right and centre, living really well and um, doing the art they wanted to do, which was great. It took you out of the, the mentality that artists had to suffer and that they had to be in the garret and... It's really important to change that mentality, otherwise you never achieve anything. You've got to, you've got to change how you think. So that began the journey of how to think as an artist, a free artist. How was your work progressing then? I was up in the top floor of our little house. It was just a big empty room with wonderful light overlooking the sea. It was just beautiful. I was working in plaster, so I'd go for a walk in the olive groves and into the forest, and I'd find beautiful sticks, and the beautiful sticks I'd put together and they became the language of the work, elongated figurative work. And it became the beginning of those works. I've always been quite elongated with my work. I'm attracted to elongation. It was really difficult finding my avenue. Eventually I chose bronze because bronze had all that tensile strength. It allowed really skinny um, bits and pieces coming out. Really, that's why you chose bronze, because of elongation? Yeah, yeah. Because I was working in wood because of my stringy long pieces and it was beautiful. But I ended up being really affected by the dust because everything's dusty because you're using a chainsaw and all the different tools you have to have. And I ended up getting lots of sinus problems. So from there I decided I would work towards bronze and that's really helped me. Then as I got a bit older, it's probably me too, I got a bit wider, so did my artwork. <laughs> You don't look very wide to me, Shona. <laughs> and so then I think it went on to... I was really attracted to stone then because I could work in the stone, whereas the elongated works really couldn't, didn't go. It's wrong to use stone in a way that's not its nature. So that's truth to material. Indeed. What sort of family were you born into? What did they do? My father was a a painter. I would say that my father was the one who really influenced my journey as an artist because I remember sitting under his easel when I was like three, watching him paint. 
how would you say you started off as an artist? What were your first memories of doing art yourself? Painting my father's paintings, actually, because I loved watching him paint. I just always believed I was going to be an artist too. I thought I was going to be a painter. But as I grew older and then I started playing with clay, I realised how much I loved form. So as a teenager, I knew I was going to be a sculptor. I was brought up in a, probably a very conservative way. I was going to an all-girls Catholic college and there wasn't a lot of art and I just yearned, I really yearned just to, to do my art. And finally my mother agreed and she took me to a college in Melbourne. I ended up going there for my final years of secondary school and from there went on to RMIT, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology for Sculpture. So I did a Bachelor in Fine Art. And how old were you then? Um, 17. And how did you feel doing that course? Um, liberated. We had Italian teachers and um, uh, one of the other lecturers was from Lithuania and he was really conservative. He was really a formidable man. He taught me a lot about restraint and that, that was a really good thing for me because sometimes you can get romantically over-expressive. And so he, he held that back, pulled, pulled us back. It made me consider the moment before action, always hold back so that you always had a feeling and presence in the work, the work about to move, about to make itself known to you. So all the energies retained in the sculpture, it's not gone with the expression of I'm running, I'm doing something. So uh, we're at the end of your college now. Do you, did you work up to like a final show and by the time you'd worked up to the end of college, did you know what the next step would be? Well, in the middle of college, I deferred for two years. And that was fantastic because I travelled. I did a lot of a real study of different cultures. It was a beautiful, enriching time of my life. And I also travelled up north with my father, the north of Australia. And he, and he really loves Aboriginal culture and he loves the land. We found really beautiful ancient caves. In some of these caves, there were these guardian figures. The guardian figures have really influenced a lot of my work from that period on, but also probably because being brought up Catholic, you have angels and things like that, so you think of guardian figures. These beautiful guardian figures in front of this Aboriginal cave and their stories in their cave paintings has really influenced my work. How would you define a guardian figure? The guardian figures are usually male and female for me, and to me it represents yin and yang, day and night, consciousness and unconsciousness. And I feel like you need guardians at the entrance of your mind you need them to filter out things that are bad for you, you know, that take away your energy. I also like them at the entrance of a house. They've changed over the years. At first they were very literal, like figurative, really, really figurative. But more and more as I've gone by, the abstraction of life is more important than the elements that you relate to. But you still got to relate to it. So my latest guardians are a bit like shields, a male and a female shield. And the shield is sort of a bit leaf-like and they've just come from different influences. You look for them in your life. You look for things to change your language, to grow your language. When we were in Asia, we'd spend hours just looking at shells and different things. And one day we picked up this beautiful tortoiseshell and it was just, it was the rib of, of part of the shell on the outside. and It just told a story of another guardian these beautiful markings on the back, the simplicity of the back and the, and the, and the firmness and then the, the soft gentleness inside of the shell. You find these languages that come into your work 
and the women figures have been really influenced by what I see in different cultures too. I love the woman form as a vessel form because I see her as cyclic fertility. I'm always looking for things that embody those attributes of, of the female. When you were talking about the shell, I was just wondering, is there something to do with home? Is home part of what one is feeling with a guardian? Is it a safety, a home thing? Because they make me feel safe, the way you explain them. Um, it is about being safe. I don't know whether it's about being home. I think you have to feel you're safe anywhere in life. But I also think an artist invests something in their artwork. So there's a feeling within the, the work that it is, that it represents that. So I think when you focus on, when you look at a piece and you say, they, oh, I love those guardians, and you feel safe, it's creating a whole atmosphere around you. It, it's an energy that goes out. So uh, you went travelling. Yep, and then I came back to college, and lo and behold, there was Michael. <laughs> he was so naughty. <laughs> I just fell, I fell over, rolled over. I was like, well, first of all, I thought he was my very best friend. <laughs> and everybody else knew before me that I was just besotted by this guy. Anyway, one day he touched my arm as we were going across the road to our, to our history lesson. And um, yeah, it was all sparks. It was amazing, I was really shocked. But he came from another college and he was a bit of a rebel too. And he'd come from a really free college. He was free. So Michael's work was all about freedom and, and expressing himself and, and real play, really. And I was very serious. So the two of us together have really um, influenced each other along the way. I really needed his, his aspect of lightness and joy. And when I say lightness, it's not light. It's just that he... He plays, he moves things along with the joy of what he does. So he's been a big influence. So straight away, there we were at college and straight away I got pregnant. <laughs> I don't know how dumb I was, but I was. So our life started really fast after college. First of all, we really tried to be really good. Michael straight away went and got a job working as a teacher and um, I became the house person and we knew that we were going to break up within months. We just knew it. Just wasn't a dreams. We just had all these dreams. Anyway, Michael taught for two years and then we decided, no, we're leaving. We're going to Italy. Did you remain in Italy or where did, where did, you said you were there for eight months, is that Carrara? Yeah, then we, we travelled a little bit, uh, we, we had an old um, Fiat, little Fiat, a Fiat 750 is it? 500, yeah, and then it was a 750 and we had Jake in the back and a, on a bit of a sheepskin and he had his Lego and he played in the back as we travelled around Europe. We ended up getting to London, to Ireland and then we came back to Amsterdam and then we hopped on an old sea trader and went up to the Northern Islands. It was beautiful. And then we ran out of money completely. <laughs> so back to Australia? And then back to Australia and, th and there we stayed for quite a few years getting ourselves organised. 
having studios. We would live with Michael's old lecturer. He challenged every single thought we had. He was amazing. He was very significant in making us the artists we are, we, we think. Probably because of him, he was just amazing. Great. So let's jump forward then. Um, Pietra Santa, how long have you been here? Tell me, tell me of this section of life when the, ki- the boys were grown up. Okay. How, wh- why did you come back again to Italy and how did your work progress? Well, we'd been coming back over the years, um, doing artist residencies and just loving it and dreaming, of course, dreaming that we we're going to come here and live. But it was a hard thing to organise. And you think you've got to keep the kids in school, but anyway, we kept taking them out. Because, hey, they chose you too. <laughs> That's right. Oh, God. <laughs> no conscience. <laughs> anyway, finally, we made a decision one day when we came over to one of our collector's birthday parties in Luca. She had this fantastic international birthday party in a gorgeous villa, really romantic. It was just beautiful. And we were sitting on the walls of Luca. You know, you've, you're so full of feeling and impassioned by the love of what you're experiencing. Six months, we said, we're coming back and we're going to buy something in those hills. Our collector told us that Bunyad Luca was the place to be. So we were convinced that's where we were going to go. At that party, we got a fantastic commission to do a big horse and rider for me. And that, that horse and rider basically paid for a little cottage up in the hills above Banyaluka. Sole was 14 at the time and Jacob was 21. And they, they came over, of course, with us. Sole would do correspondence from school. Australia has long distance education, so he was able to do that. And it made him very creative too, though he was very lonely. Is that because Australia is such a big country? Yeah, that's right, because there's all the desert communities and people living out in the Woolworths and can't get schooling everywhere. So we started getting our work cast and we ended up buying studios down in the valley. And I started using the foundries in Pietrasanta at that time, so 17 years ago. So I've been coming here for 17 years. So tell me about the work you were doing then. You mentioned a horse and a rider. Is, is, was that um, a theme for a time? My horse and riders are a theme, actually, in my work, because I regard them as the journey. They signify to me the journey of life. And I often do a horse and rider at one of the plateaus of my life. And sometimes you feel like you've arrived somewhere. You've arrived and you're looking down over the valley and you feel grand because you've just achieved something. So you're looking down over the valley and you feel abundant. It's a really beautiful time. So there's a piece I called Arrival. Another piece I called The Quiet. It was a time of really quiet rest and reflection. It's, it's a beautiful reflective piece, strong. The horses initially were really quite thin and the riders quite big over the horses, dominating. But as time has gone on, my horses have got bigger and my riders have become more in tune with the horses, more connected. It's really strange, but I, th- I really feel like it's, it's probably how my own journey has progressed. So my horses now are really strong. I feel like they're like the vehicle of life. You know, it's like that energy that you have, the universal energy. And so I feel like the horse is, is like that. And at first I was out of touch with the horse, I feel. that They weren't as strong. They were beautiful, fleety beings, but you hardly could grasp them. Now they're big, strong. They're on the ground. They're going to take you where you want to go. And I, I have absolute faith in life that all the things that I need happen for me. I really believe in it. And I think that's what's happened with the horses, that they've become big and I've become less significant. You know, your ego goes. The rider for me was always about the ego. So... 
what about now? What are you working on now? Um, along the way, I've become more interested in the internal. I love the inner energy, so I work with that a lot now. We're living in France. We're in this beautiful valley, which is really ancient. There's all these caves where ancient people used to live. I feel like I'm dealing with archetypal man, the deeper man. It's like he, he exists in the landscape, and so I, I, th I think I'm just trying to get to that inner person all the time. So I'm doing stellar figures. The stellar is like a marking stone of life, often depicting the part of the road, the journey for the road, or it's a memorial for a death, or that solemn marking place. And I feel like it's really important to remember that because it's about the deeper motives of why we live. So it's about the inner man, you know, why we live. It goes really fast. You're here in a flash. It's really good to understand why you're here and what you're doing. Ancient man always had archetypal images that, that they would put up, you know, like the fertility, the woman. She was really about fertility, about the seasons, about being in balance with life. So that was a bit of a journey to embrace being a woman and coming to Europe. Women love being women. They really take it on. Even with all the, the social mores that go on, the women are really women. They're proud of it. They love being feminine, whatever they are. It's a great thing. So that's helped me. And I really love the ancient stuff where women are embraced for something deeper. And, and, and I love the warrior too, and that's the male element. The warrior is really important too because he's the destroyer of old things. So they're all archetypes that ancient people have used and I want to use them too because they're still relevant today. So thanks to Shona Noonan. You can see her work on her Instagram, noonan.cartwright, or on her website, noonan-cartwright.com, where you'll find online exhibitions of her work on the theme of ancestors and woman. For photographs of all the work discussed today, follow our Instagram or visit our website, materiallyspeaking.com, where you can also join our mailing list to hear about upcoming episodes. Editorial thanks to Guy Dowsett. Thank you.